You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Diamond from the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I want to welcome you all to an evening with the Imagination Lab. Tonight, we're showcasing possibilities. We're celebrating the creativity and optimism of the writers from the Imagination Lab, and I'm definitely looking forward to hearing everyone's work. So thank you for being here tonight. Um, what I'm going to do now is pass the mic over to Lenny Sachs, board chair of Man Alive, Inc. Thank you. Hi. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Too loud. <laughs> um, so I'm Lenny Sachs. Most of you probably know me. I've been board chair of Man Alive since, I don't know, since before most of you were around. <laughs> and uh, still am. And um, I'm thrilled and honored to always have an opportunity to work with all of you folks and the folks at Man Alive who do such unbelievable and wonderful things. So I go back. I only have a couple minutes, so I've I've been told to keep it short. So I can remember when when we first started and our program got a grant and we used the grant to do the basics that we had to do, take care of people, and that's all we did. And then, um, you know, they kind of took the grant away and said, well, you got to do it this way, this way, and that way. It's probably the best thing that ever happened because of the creativity of the people that uh, surround Man Alive, in particular our director, Karen Reese, who's the most amazing person and who is just, I think, an incredible resource for this program, but also uh, for all programs they get to share. And I have to say that uh, Don, who works with our writers, has done an amazing job. He's contributed his time. And I am always amazed. You always said, you know, some of these folks that are writers, you wouldn't pass them on the street and expect them to be a good writer. You might not say, that's a good writer. I know that guy's a good writer. The guy in the blue hat, I've been trying to get his hat all night. <laughs> and you're probably not going to say he's a good writer, but that's why I always, I found out long ago, you, you don't judge the book by its cover. And, um, and I'm always shocked and, uh, and, and, and very proud to see what people can accomplish. And I think uh, you folks that are here tonight that maybe haven't had a chance to listen to some of the, 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 the writings of these guys, we'll see that, um, you know, no matter how deep your education is, uh, no matter what side of the tracks you came from, there's a lot in you that you can express. So with that, uh, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, and uh, uh, turn it over to Karen. The amazing Karen. Welcome, everybody. Um, If you don't have your cell phones turned off, please turn them off. Thank you. Um, Four years ago, Man Alive added another specialty program to the existing methadone clinic, the mental health services, the Suboxone program, and the DUI. This program was called the Imagination Lab. The premise was to introduce talented and imaginative people who could come into our program because we knew these were the people that would potentially view those that are in treatment with us more than just addicts. And I say addicts in parentheses because we do not like to use that term. Four years ago, the first person who walked through the doors was Don Rysette, and everything changed. It was a, 
eye-opening experience for us, and I think it was definitely an eye-opening experience for Don. But since he walked through those doors, I can tell you the writers have exceeded all of our expectations. Don's classes are mesmerizing, and he's able to take them to a really safe space to explore the inner depths of their intricate and authentic selves. The pieces are compelling, but I will let Don talk about that. But before I turn it over to Don, I'd like to introduce Jose Rodriguez, who's the Director of Opiate Overdose Prevention in Baltimore City, and he's representing the Mayor's Office tonight and the Commissioner, Dr. Wynn. Thank you, Jose. Thank you, and uh, I'm really grateful to be here tonight. Um, Mayor Pugh and, of course, Commissioner Wentz send their regards. I'd like to take just a few moments just to um, share my thoughts on my recent visit to Man Alive and the Imagination <coughs> Lab. The first thing, I was really uh, captivated and, and impressed by a welcoming and diverse staff, a staff that reflects the community that we serve. Uh, and that's incredibly important, especially as we're trying to establish a long-term relationship with the residents of Baltimore. Secondly, I was inspired by the passion and lived experience by the staff. This diverse and uh, lived experience really culminates in innovative ideas. And one of those ideas, of course, is the Imagination Lab. The lab provides an opportunity to explore and nurture the creative talents of those struggling with the disease of addiction. And today, specifically, I'm here to recognize one of those artists, to recognize Dawn, a writer, a teacher, a mentor, who has helped many individuals find their voice. I'm proud to present Dawn with a certificate of recognition on behalf of Mayor Pugh and the city of Baltimore. I may just briefly read the recognition. In recognition of your astounding work with young writers at the Imagination Lab, through your tireless efforts and extraordinary talents, you have transformed the lives of those individuals in your writing class. With your countless volunteer hours spent at the agency and at home editing their work, they would have never have been able to call themselves writers. On behalf of the citizens of Baltimore, I commend you for sharing your gifts to our people. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> That's a great honor. I appreciate that. Good evening, everybody. Take a minute and walk with me <clears throat> in your minds. Up the street, uh, several blocks, actually almost a mile from here to a typical Wednesday morning in Amsterdam. For those of you who might not be familiar with Amsterdam, it was a name given to a fictional, drugs-tolerant neighborhood block in David Simon's powerful HBO series, The Wire. A neighborhood block where drugs were sold and used freely, even as the police watched. In a television series, the images of the fictional Baltimore street, known as Amsterdam, were dominated by a sea of lost people struggling to cope, to cope with drugs, to cop drugs, and to use drugs. I think of it every Wednesday morning when I enter the relatively faceless building on, Man, on uh, Maryland Avenue that is the home of Man Alive around which, on any given Wednesday morning, you will see a sea of people struggling to find their way back onto solid footing. Both sides of the street and several surrounding blocks literally teem with drug addicts. Most aged beyond their years, hard lives and hard edges etched into their weary faces and abused bodies. They are, at first glance, an imposing and intimidating lot. Some are homeless. Many have been in prison, caught in the revolving steel doors of Maryland's penal system. All 
have swallowed, sniffed, or mainlined away too many of the best years of their lives. Using, selling, endlessly copying. But unlike Amsterdam's conjuring of hopelessness and defeat, and the endless quest to cop that next hit, the people I see on these Wednesday mornings are now looking to cop something very different. They're, lo they're looking to cop respect and self-esteem. And I'm proud to say I'm one of their dealers. <laughs> on any given Wednesday, anywhere from 10 to 20 of them join me in the fourth floor conference room at Man Alive. Some are regulars, rarely missing a session. Many newbies wander in and out. And always on the subject of wandering in and out, people who come for a few sessions and then might disappear for weeks, months, years at a time. Only to reappear out of the blue after perhaps a stint in rehab, a step backwards, or just they forgot it's Wednesday. Or because they found jobs or other ways to move their lives productively forward. Over the next hour or so in that fourth floor conference room, they will write about their lives, their experiences, their hopes, and their dreams, and their fears. I arrive each week with a topic or thought starter. They write for a half hour, 45 minutes. Then those who wish to share with the group what they've written do so. And most, nobody's ever pressured to share, but most always, almost everybody shares. It's an exceptionally supportive group. It's exceptionally enlightening as well. You know, it's interesting, many of these people have known each other for years, either from their days copying on the streets, or maybe they went to school together, maybe they grew up in the same neighborhood. And yet these writing sessions open up aspects of their lives and most importantly, glimpses of their talent that not even good friends were aware existed. Their support for one another never fails to impress me. They comfort each other through, through tears. They laugh with each other. And they really, really love to give each other shit. <laughs> it's that kind of environment. As you would expect, they often write about the pain and anguish of their years of addiction. And what they've learned, albeit too late in many instances, in doing so. And that's healthy. But there's more to these people than their addiction. So tonight, we'd like you to see and hear their creativity, their insights, their wisdom, and their imagination. I've asked David to get us started tonight. David is uh, going to share a piece with you that is an amazing piece, I think. It gives real personal meaning to an abstract concept. It's the very first piece David ever wrote in the, in the Imagination Lab. It was the very first session he ever arrived at. This was the topic I gave them. It's called the white box. I told them all I wanted them to imagine walking into the fourth floor conference room that we use week in and week out. And all of the things that are usually there, tables, chairs, things on the walls, bookcases, they're gone. Nothing is in this room except a very large white box. Perfectly square, <coughs> as big as a person, as smooth as steel, no apparent access point, impossible to move. Scares the hell out of you. You want to leave, but you can't. You're locked in. Now you're in this room just you and this white box. This is what David did with that topic. Good evening, everyone. I want to thank Mr. John, Ms. Reese. I'm very nervous, so please. <laughs> okay. Uh, as I enter the room, a large white box comes into sight. I stop and stare at it, perfectly square, with sharp edges, 
as white as clouds in the sky, about six feet high and 20 feet from corner to corner. I step closer and reach out my hand to touch it. It's cold but smooth. I look to see if it has a top or lid on it. No, it does not. There seems to be no way to see what's in, in it or to get in it. I step back to figure out why the box is here and where everyone else has gone. As I'm thinking, I hear a faint tapping noise coming from the box. I come closer, trying to listen. I put my hand on the spot where the tapping seems to be coming from, and my hand go in, goes inside the box. It felt like I was being pulled inside the box. I tried to keep from getting pulled in, but there was nothing I could hold on to. I planted my feet firmly on the floor, but I kept being slowly pulled in. I started to scream and yell for help. As I got pulled further in the box, I felt a warmth and somehow thought that the box meant me no harm. I stopped struggling and let, let myself be pulled into the box. I felt warmth and happiness, but I couldn't see anything. I was blinded. My breath became heavy and my body was shaking, but somehow I wasn't afraid. Time went quickly in the box, days to months to years. At first, I never thought about leaving. I knew my loved ones would look for me and my family and friends would too. But for some reason, the box was giving me everything I thought I needed. The box was now what I wanted. I had to stay there. This went on and on. Time meant nothing to me. It took 20 years of my life for me to realize that there was actually no box. It was my own stupidity that drew me to what I now know is my addiction. I put myself in that box and only I can keep out of it and away from the madness, selfishness, and terror that has caused me and the people that I care for. Thank you. Next person up is uh, uh, a guy who has uh, one of several people here tonight has been with me since the very beginning, Jimmy Martin. Uh, he's going to share a piece with you that uh, uh, uses fictional characters to convey real-world emotions. The assignment I gave them that day was, I said, I wanted them to think of a nursery rhyme or children's story. And think about the characters in that nursery rhyme or children's story and the story itself. And I want you to apply those, that story, those characters, those feelings to your own life experience. Jimmy tapped into the Wizard of Oz, the Scarecrow, the Cowardly Lion, the Tin Man, in a uniquely Jimmy way. <laughs> All right, thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, tell you the truth, without Man Alive, I don't know where I'd be right now. And I appreciate everything Mr. Don, Ms. Reese, and the program has, has um, helped me to achieve. <clears throat> like I said, my name is Jimmy Martin. It's called Nursery Rhymes in Real Life. <clears throat> when I was a kid, I never thought I'd be in this position on a methadone recovery program that goes to show you that things can happen. First of all, I was raised in a loving family. I was a good student with good grades. I liked sports, and I had a good amount of friends. That's probably where I started going wrong. I started trying to be like my so-called friends. I began to use first weed, then heroin. I tried drinking, but I got so sick, sore throat, upset stomach, headache, vomiting, I never drank Thunderbird ever again. I continued, I, excuse, <clears throat> I continued to use heroin, however, for 25 years, off and on, 
I tried to clean up a few times. The first time I tried, I guess my heart wasn't in it. Like the cavalry line. So I went back out. After a while, I tried again. This time, I just knew I would make it. Only to use again. Like the tent man. I didn't have the brains I need to get over the hump. Now, I'm in recovery once again. This time, I'm taking it one day at a time. I'm not going to be like the scarecrow, afraid to ask for help with things I don't know. This time, I'm going to kick my heels all the way to sobriety. Thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, one day I wrote one word uh, on the board, uh, put a question mark at the end. The word was why, W-H-Y. Um, and I didn't give him a lot of preamble about it uh, other than the obvious, which is it's one of the first questions any of us probably ever ask anybody, anybody our parents or whatever. Don't touch that. Why? If you're two years old, don't go there. Why? Don't talk to him. Why? It's a basic, fundamental aspect of our lives. And with that simple thing, I asked, that simple uh, intro, I asked uh, them to think about what, where that, that took their minds. And Mike did a great job of, uh, we got somebody trying to come in? Um, Mike, uh, Mike did a great job of uh, exploring a particularly important why to him. Okay, Mike. Good evening, everybody. Uh, when I came in that day and uh, where it was on the board, why? You know, what with the why? He said, write what you feel. And this is what I came up with. The question of why always opened the doors to unending answers and zillion more questions. To me, why is the doorway that opens the thought process, making the brain work? Why can be taken to new heights and allow people to see and think past what's there on the surface. The mind or brain contains all faucets of knowledge. The why that has always puzzled me is why God still has me here. Most of the people I grew up with are long gone and buried. Thinking back to the times we shared and the messes we were involved in, we should all be dead still. I'm not the ultimate authority on who lives or dies. So here I sit wondering why. I have come to the conclusion that my creator has a plan of why each and every one of us are here and what it is we are supposed to do. Whatever that primary purpose for which you were born, until you complete that task, you will be here. My thinking says, until I complete the job or duty for which my God gave me life, I will continue to learn lessons, preparing myself to ultimately complete that which I was born to do. Thank you, Father. As you listen to these pieces, uh, I want you to keep in mind that when everybody comes in each week, they have no idea what I'm going to come in with. None. Um, and they don't have a lot of time to think about it and write about it. Half hour, maybe 40 minutes. And then we start sharing. These are, not, these are raw pieces right off the top. They're not edited and polished. And, and yet, they're pretty damn polished. The next person up is, one, is a great example, perfect example, of one of the comments I made earlier about people who come once or twice and then they might go away for weeks or months or, or years. <laughs> um, and in, in Laurie's case, uh, it was about um, 
maybe three years. Um, uh, but I was thrilled when she came back because I remembered what she did when she first came and I was happy that she was back. Um, one day I asked them to kind of think about what they see when they look in the mirror and reflect on, use that to reflect on the past and to think about the future. And Laurie did that um, using a wonderful analogy, a very touching analogy as she uses it, of uh, two peas in a pod. Okay, well. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming. Looking back, looking forward, looking back into my life, I will go as far as December the 1st, 2003. That's when I lost my pain. Y'all know the saying, two peas in a pod? That was my brother Earl and me. Earl was killed by a young boy that my brother treated like a brother. And that's the thanks he got. Every time I look Every time I look at myself now, I see my brother, and that makes me feel feel a lot of pain and heartache. Then I came to the year 2010 when I lost my mother. More pain. My mother put up a long, hard fight with cancer, breast cancer. 2000. I'm saying breast cancer. 19. 79, throat cancer, 2005, then the hardest one, colon cancer, 2010, was the one that called her home. I sat beside my mother until she took her last breath. It is so painful to watch someone you love pass away right before your eyes, but I think going through that made made me find more strength within myself. I can look in the mirror today without seeing my mother and my brother because I look like both of them. Seeing them gives me strength to go on. I have gotten better about dealing with pain and heartache. Now I take some pride when I'm watching my brother's twins. They are a part of my brother. They are the new peas in the pod. Um, the next, uh, the next lady who's going to share a piece with us. Um, we should be especially happy she's here because she just got out of the hospital. Um, and we were wor worried that she wasn't going to be able to make it here at all. But Miss Sharon is a trooper, and uh, she has also been one of the people who's been with me pretty much since the very beginning. Um, the first, she's going to share two pages with you tonight, but the first, this, this first one is about uh, some of the heading music and memories. Um, it's about the power of music to uh, evoke warm memories and, uh, in her case, foolish decisions, both. Um, it's prompted by, in my own, I, one of the <coughs> sayings that has always stuck with me for whatever reason is a saying by the playwright Tennessee Williams. He wrote, in memory, everything seems to happen to music. And if you really think about that, there's a certain truth to that. But I also believe that music triggers memory. And so that's what I asked them to do, to think of a song that takes you away to another place in time. So Sharon is going to share hers. Thank you, everyone. The piece that I wrote on music and memories. Certain songs do indeed trigger memories, both pleasant and unpleasant. For me, one of the songs that always triggers happy memories is the song sung by Bill Withers titled Grandma's Hands. For me, the words of this song say, an, say the exact things that my grandmother actually did when I was growing up. Some of the words go, 
Grandma's hands used to clap in church on Sunday. Grandma's hands used to pick me up each time I fell. Grandma's hands used to hold me when I cried. All of those things from the song were things that my grandma did as well. I can still feel the warmth of my grandma's hands whenever I hear this song. There's also a song that I often that often brings me sad memories. It causes me to pause and think. There's a part that goes, no one wants to be the first to say goodbye. During my life, I have experienced that feeling in relationships where I no longer wanted to be with a guy but stayed, wanting him to be the first to say goodbye, to break up the relationship and leave. Thank you. The last line in that piece, she forgot to mention, but it's a, it's a, she had a question mark at the end of that, which is crazy, huh? Um, and, uh, but we've all been in that kind of situation, I suspect. Um, speaking of great writers who show up at our sessions, uh, even Shakespeare showed up one day. Um, or at least his words did. Um, and Alicia's going to share with us a personal translation of a bit of Shakespearean wisdom, the words being, to thine own self be true. I asked them all to think about those words and think about what they meant to, to them. Alicia. I know they call you peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank y'all for coming. I mostly want to thank the staff at Man Alive for allowing me to be able to enter the writing class. And mostly Mr. Dawn for giving me a way to strengthen myself in my writing. This piece is titled, To Thine Own Self Be True. These words of truth have many meanings. Being truthful to yourself is so important. There's very little loyalty in the world these days. Non-loyalty can cause numerous reactions to happen. People will stop trusting you. Love is lost in relationships. And it puts distance between people. It cl cl the closeness falls apart. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> the closeness falls apart. Being truthful to yourself is number one in life. Without it, our relationships fall apart, and we do too. Trusting in myself allows me to have pride, security, assurance, and happiness. When I'm truthful to myself, I can be open to others and feel the gift of glory that God has bestowed upon me. I'm able to be honest with others and feel free to express my thoughts. I'm able to put my all into my work and my life for the betterment of myself and others. Truthfulness to self is really all we have to lean on. It's our bond and security and strength. So be true to thine own self. Live happily and learn to really love yourself. Thank you. Um, the next writer uh, has definitely been with me since the very beginning, and I, I don't think, I'm not sure if Wayne has ever missed a session. He might have missed one sometime, and, uh, but very, very few in the last four years. He's going to share a couple of pieces with you tonight. The first one is, uh, I asked them to, as the title of this is, I was 17 once. I asked them all to take themselves back to that point in their lives, to being 17 years old, and what was going on. And a uh, couple things about Wayne. One, Wayne always, we can always count on there be a little humor involved in Wayne's piece. Um, and he will also almost always refer to his alter ego, uh, who is Crazy Wayne. So there's Wayne and there's Crazy Wayne. And they both show up pretty regularly. Um, 
But what particularly struck me about this, not only the, the, the stories he tells about being 17, but in the midst of this story, there is an insight that about fatherhood that is just so powerful and so strong. And uh, sometimes these things happen in the writings and it's only, I don't even, when, we, when they share them in the sessions, uh, I don't even notice it until I go back and I look at them and I type them up for them and, and then it really hits me too. Um, but this is a really special, uh, special piece. Okay, Wayne. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. And I'm so glad that each and every one of you all took the time out to come and spend time with my family, because Man Alive is my family. Everybody in, in, the, in the staff and everybody, they, they somebody in my outside family, because my family, I was brought up and raised in, they didn't understand nothing about addiction. So based on this piece I'm getting maybe based on, it's when I was 17. Thank God I don't look like what I've been through because believe it or not, that was 40 years ago. Because <laughs> I'm now 57 today. I will always remember that night at the dinner table with both of my parents and my brother and sister. It was the night following my first day of high school in my senior year. That was the night I told my family that I no longer wanted to go to college. Both of my parents looked at me by, like I was crazy. By then, I figured out they had already knew I was born crazy. <laughs> my father said, what you want to do, start selling drugs like all your other friends? I said, no, Dad, since you always think you know so much, only 8 out of 12 of my friends sell drugs. <laughs> Later that night, thinking about that conversation, I realized that the four of us that did not sell drugs all had our fathers in our homes. My father told me, you could go ahead and start selling drugs if you want to, but let, let you know that me and your mother would disown you and you would no longer be allowed in this house, and we will only feed you from the outside. I said to myself, you better change them locks then. <laughs> Another thing I remember from that year, it was the day before my spring break of my senior year. I was walking up the street to my house when I passed Peanut King sitting in his car. By the way, he was my neighbor. He lived, he lived in the first house on the block, and I lived in the, in the fifth house. He asked me to get in the car with him. I told him no. I was not afraid of him. He never beat it up. He never beat anyone. His demeanor wasn't violence, and his MO wasn't extravagant. So when he showed me that $100 bill, Almost snatched the damn car door off that car. <laughs> you would have thought I was Flash Gordon how fast I got in that car with him. Inside Peanut said, I want you to do me a big, big favor. I want you to go up to New York and pick up a package for me. Once you return and give me that package, I will take you to whatever car dealer you want and buy you whatever kind of car you want. All you need to do is bring an adult with you to put the car in their name. Then he added, Please don't bring your father. And he laughed real loud. I did not find that shit funny. I opened the car door to exit and asked him, did he want his money back? He said, no, but I do want, I want you to think about it. Then he said, by the way, check out this picture. This is how I want you to dress when you come back bringing me my package. Laugh out loud, it was Crazy Wayne dressed like a nerd. <laughs> Peanut King, I, 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 I don't know if everybody knows, Peanut King was like the heroin king of uh, Baltimore back in the day. Um, the, next, uh, the next writer, uh, uh, this is not an overstatement to say we could do an hour just with Duval. Uh, because Duval is a great storyteller and is absolutely in love with the neighborhood he grew up in. Um, I can relate to this. I, I've always felt like I had an idyllic childhood, and I think back on my neighborhood and so fondly. And so whenever I hear Duval write about Turner Station and all that was wonderful about it, it really touches a nerve. 
but he also <clears throat> writes about some of the crazy characters that uh, he knew there. Um, and there were indeed some crazy ones. But there was also one that he'll refer to um, that touched him very deeply. So here's Duval Farm. Hello, everybody. I'd like to share a little of a little of my writings with you. It was about neighborhoods and characters. I was born in a small town named Turner Station in southeast Baltimore County. It was situated at the end of Dunlock Avenue like a finger sticking out into Bear Creek with water on three sides of it. I had lots of family there, like my cousins Elva Banks and Velma O'Neill. Velma's mother, Evelyn, and Elva's mother, Elva, were twin sisters. They each had good-sized families. Velma had three sisters and four brothers, and Elva had two sisters and three brothers. Elva's brothers were the ones who taught me how to play baseball and football. I remember my cousin Kenny, Elva's oldest brother, taught me how not to sling the bat after I hit the ball. I had everybody behind me running for cover whenever I went up the bat. When Bubba, Elva's second oldest brother, taught me how to place hit, it was all over. Sometimes I would get a good hit and knock the ball out of the field into someone's yard or the street. They never knew where the ball was going. I never had as much fun as the days I visited my cousin's houses. We held comic book hero days and court hearing days. Jumped across the room from one set of bunk beds to the other when their parents weren't home. There was always something to do in Turner Station. If we got bored, we could go swimming, fishing, or crabbing for free. And go exploring in the woods. When you stepped into the woods, you were in another world. It was always dark and cool, even on the hottest summer days. We also had a pond deep in the woods called the Goldfish Pond. I believe they were gold caught, but everybody called it the Goldfish Pond. There was also an old train trussle that had burned down near the middle way into Bear Creek. It used to take our parents and their classmates to the elementary school in Spurs Point called Bragg School. It was on the Point Plant property. I remember that people were living on that plant property. They would hang their white sheets out to drown the clotheslines, and the sheets would turn red with ore dust. I had a few neighbors who were really interesting characters when I was between 6 and 16 years old. One of them lived next door to me. His name was Pee Wee Himes. He was, about, he was about 10 years older than me, and my mother paid him to babysit me when she was going to be away from the house for a while. I remember one day I had to stay home from school because I had the flu. Well, Pee Wee had the bright idea that I would feel better if I drank some Thunderbird wine. <laughs> On the other hand, maybe he thought if I drank it, I would go to sleep and he would be able to do something else he didn't want me to see. After he just about forced me to drink the glass of wine, he got the surprise of his life. I started cursing him out and chasing him around the house, throwing stuff at him. When my mother came home, she saw that the house looked worse than it did when she left. And she asked Pee Wee what happened. He told her that we were playing and he just didn't get a chance to straighten up. I just looked at him. Then there was Mouse Morgan. I didn't have any older brothers at the time, but it seems that I adopted a few along the way. One of them was my buddy Puncy Morgan's brother, Mouse. Mouse was about six years older than me and Puncy, and he had been in Vietnam. One time he was taking his son to the circus, and he paid my way too because he didn't want to go by himself. So we sat in the stands and drank a fifth of Thunderbird together. Little by little, I found out that Mouse had been a ranger in the 82nd Airborne. One time he showed me how they taught him how to hit the ground and roll when they parachuted from the air into the jungle. It was also there that he caught his drug habit. He told me how easy it was to get drugs in Vietnam. They used to cold shake raw heroin out in the bush. Once Mouse was telling me about his war experiences and I saw that he had tears running down his cheeks. It made me feel like an exceptional individual to have someone share such personal life experiences with me. He told me to never lose my job because nobody could or would ever look out for my family like I did. Mouse left a positive impression on me. When I found out he had passed away, I felt like I'd lost the loss of a good friend and a big brother. Thank you.
Um, the next person up, she doesn't write too much, too often. And she doesn't write that much when she writes. But I wanted her to share this piece. She doesn't, and she doesn't like to get up and talk in front of people. Having said all that, I wanted her to share this piece because um, it is a great example of the importance of having a grabber of an opening sentence. Uh, the topic was dreams. And um, she uh, related dreams to an unusual uh, part of uh, uh, a lady's clothing. <laughs> Hello everyone, my name is Karen. <clears throat> you have to excuse me, I am so nervous. <laughs> With such a little bit to read. <clears throat> dreams. My dreams are like my underwears. <laughs> Every time I close my eyes, I'm waking up to something different. I was told that the last thing on your mind when you go to sleep is the thing you dream about. I recently had a dream that my son and I were watching TV, watching a show on TV. Y'all nervous. I couldn't stop laughing, and I was laughing so hard. Turned out that I was laughing hard because I was tickling myself under my own arms. <laughs> dreams, <laughs> understanding, dreams, underwears, Thinking myself, I'm um, tickling myself is the least I woke up to. At least I woke up smiling. <laughs> Sorry. One day uh, <clears throat> I wrote on the board, uh, broadly the topic was courage, but I wrote on the board, courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes it's a quiet voice at the end of the day that says, I'll try again tomorrow. And um, Wayne is going to share the piece he wrote about courage, um, particularly quiet courage. Good evening once again. I know everybody in Man Alive family saying they don't never remember I was ever quiet. <laughs> courage. Once again, I'm in high school at the dinner table again. I can remember the first, the first time I had quiet courage. One morning in the middle of my first quarter of high school at Polytech, I stayed home from school to wait till my father got off from work and arrived home. When he did, I told him, my mother told him to take me to get me transferred out of Polytech to dump to Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School. I had never wanted to go to Poly, my, but my counselor signed me because of my grades, and they said that was the school I should have attended. I wanted, I wanted out of Poly. I wasn't hoping to be an engineer. The only smokestack I was interested in was those 20 joints I was smoking every day. <laughs> so that evening, I'm sitting at the dinner table with both my parents. My mother finished saying the grace. And I'm sitting next to my father. He said to my mother, baby, I did what you told Wayne to tell me to do. Immediately, I kicked my father under the table. He said, boy, what the hell you kicked me for? The next thing I remember, I was knocked under the table, and that's where I tried to stay. My mother said, boy, get up and eat. I said, I'm not hungry. My father replied, boy, if you don't get up, you will be eating both of my feet for dinner. <laughs> as badly as I wanted to say something back to him, I had the courage to remain silent. <laughs> of course, I ended up that night getting an a, a ass whooping from both of them. That was the last ass whooping I got from them. And it was a double whammy, one for Wayne and one for Crazy Wayne. <laughs> When I went to school the next day, I told the teacher I had hemorrhoids, and the doctor said I must stand up for a whole week. Uh, that, that comes under the broad heading of learning the hard way. Uh, and uh, 
Uh, Deval is going to share a short piece about learning the hard way uh, about money. <laughs> Deval? Thank you. Hello again, everyone. This is a short one. I remember first grade at Fleming Elementary School. We used to buy National Guard stamps then, but my mother would never give me stamp money. So one morning, I decided to take a dollar to school. I'd taken it out of my mother's wallet, but I was too dumb to realize that every bill was not one dollar. <laughs> my teacher, Mrs. Owens, asked me if my mother knew that I had that money to buy stamps. And I said yes. Well, when I got home that day, Miss Extension Court told me that there's a big difference between a $1 bill and a $20 bill. That was my first lesson in finance. Uh, the next piece, uh, is Mike uh, is going to share a second piece with you tonight. Uh, the topic was dinner guests. I asked them to imagine that they could have dinner with any three people they wanted, uh, alive or dead. And um, so Mike pulled together uh, several icons, a little okra, and, uh, and wrapped it up with getting them learning to know oneself. Okay, Mike. Good evening, gang. Uh, dinner guest plus. My three guests would be Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Barack Obama. Being my guests are all African American, black, the menu would be soul food, and the conversation would be about yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Dr. King starts the rap session with why the old heads allow the whippersnappers to drop the ball. All the dreams I had seemed to be gone by the wayside. Judging ourselves by the content of our character and not the color of our skins bring back Black Lives Matter. Because black lives always matter. Mr. President Obama set an example as high as the sky, yet no one seems to want to follow. Now sits the idiot of the 21st century, yet we pay no attention at all. In walks Malcolm X as a reminder that we are black African Americans, must be at least three times better than our counterparts. No one, not one single soul, seems to understand that that means by any means necessary. In the meantime, here's Michelle with hot cornbread, southern fried chicken, black eyed peas, brown rice and okra. Oh yeah, and a tall glass of iced tea and lemonade, half and half. <laughs> with a meal like this, any and all business can be discussed. African Americans must solve our own problems. Thinking someone else will solve them for us is why we are here anyway. Today is the beginning of the rest of our lives. God help those who help themselves. Being a history buff has given me information that gives me pride as to who I am, yet it opens doors to prejudice also. Being African American means a lot, a lot of things to a lot of people, but what does it really mean? One man is no better than the next, Maybe a little different, but still much the same. If I know who I am, then who you are is not a threat to me. The necessity of cultural pride is a good thing, for all cultures are important. The unnecessity of prejudice should be equally clear. Putting someone down as a means to building someone else up is a falsehood. Love yourself and love someone who seems different. For in the end, no one is better than the other. Thank you. Uh, and bring Wayne up one more last time. Uh, 
One of the things, uh, one of the aspects of the Imagination Lab that has been uh, part of the process in recent years um, has been a ceramics uh, program. And one of the projects that they all worked on was uh, creating a ceramic version of their neighborhood house. Uh, and they did some beautiful jobs, some beautiful work, and they had them all lined up on, on the conference table one day. And they told me that the name of the street that all these ceramic houses was on was called Recovery Road. And so I asked them to write a piece about Recovery Road, but to juxtapose it against Addiction Alley. And this is what Wayne did. Good evening once again. Get ready for this one, y'all. Addiction Alley versus Recovery Road. Life, life in Addiction alley, alley was pure hell for me. It's a part of my life that sometimes I wish I could, could forget about. But as much as I try, God will not allow me to do so because it's part of my purpose. And it is a reason why he created me and brought me here to tell this story. My alley story will be short and straight to the point. That was there was this one cold winter afternoon, a lot of ice on the ground, and I was copping some, some dope when the police came. We all tried to run out the alley, but we couldn't get out the alley. This old lady named Miss Scent was in the alley with us right away. This old lady named Miss Scent was in the alley with us. Right away, she said to the officer, excuse me, I was looking for my daughter. Someone told me she was up here and she stole my money. They told her that she can leave. So I yelled out, hey, mom, you going to leave me up in here? The police say, nice try. As for the recovery road, it's been a very, very hard job. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, one hour at a time, bittersweet and bittersour sometimes. But it's happy. It's a happy new life with a lot of wonderful, good people in it who all had my best interests in mind and are cheering for me. So, so it's so so amazing how blessed I have been. Boy, oh boy, how many, how my life has has changed, and it get better and better every single day, regardless in spite of many times that the devil keep trying to steal my soul. I thank God and praise Him that I continue to stay strong. And be able to walk away when the temptation comes. I am thankful and wonderful and good of the good changes I have made and all of the goals I have reached each year. And one of the most recent goals, goals was to join a ministry in my church where I mentor young boys ages 13 to 16. There are eight, 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 eight boys and four mentors. We have group sections and individual sections. And... And, and as each of us as mentor assigned two boys, I knew right away 100% and I was right that I, with two boys I would get. I got the one with the most outspoken and the one with the smartest mouth. And when I do individual sections with them, it's like looking in the mirror talking to Crazy Wayne. Uh, Wayne is paying it forward, no question about it. Uh, the final piece for tonight, uh, I'm going to uh, ask Miss Sharon to come back up. Um, one day I, I uh, you know, Karen said at the very beginning, we don't like to use the word addict. Um, I asked them to, uh, I said, you know, look around this room at this room full of addicts. And what do you think? Uh, Sharon did a terrific piece that reflects on stigmas and stereotypes and, uh, and the word addict. Thank you again, ladies and gentlemen. A room full of addicts. If only we as people could stop labeling one another, many of the world's problems might be solved. Although I don't believe that this, that this will ever happen, I dream of the day 
when we would learn about one another and think of one another as individuals and stop painting one another with the broad brush of stereotypes. Example, the word addict. I became an addict because I was weak. I was a teenager with a terribly bad self-image and I was fascinated by the addicts on Pennsylvania Avenue. In those days, addicts were the most part hustlers, were for the most part hustlers. They dressed well, had big money, two things that, they were the two things that attracted me most. On Sundays, addicts would go do their hit and go to the, go to the jazz show on Charles Street. Afterward, your group would go out to dine. I wanted to be a member of that crowd. Once I took my first shot of heroin, it gave me the feeling that I could do no wrong. My shyness disappeared. I had finally found my niche. I loved it and I stayed. Coming to Man Alive was going to be just another excuse me, going to Man Alive was going to be just one just another one of the gas and go stations as far as I was concerned. I had no expectations of anything even remotely characteristic character building or self esteem building. Sad because we addicts need these two things more than anything else in our lives. In my opinion, character and self-esteem are the building blocks of a person's feeling of worth. Only with those in place can we build other aspects of a happy and fulfilled life. I am grateful for the Imagination Lab. It has been a great help in the continuation of my building or rebuilding my character. <coughs> it has taken me a very long time to allow the real me to emerge and to be accepted for who I am, not what I was. My grandmother always told me what matters most is, what, is what's in your heart, mind, and spirit. When you feel good about yourself, the world looks so very much brighter. Thank you. That feels like a perfect place to end. Thank you all very much. Hello, everyone. I'm, I'm Christine Higgins, and I'm also part of the Imagination Lab and working with folks who do the... Um, uh, the visual arts, so I uh, invite you to look at that as well. But um, the <coughs> writers uh, shared a few um, uh, thoughts about Don and how important he's been to them, and uh, they wanted me to read them tonight. So, words from Michael. Mr. Don provides you the opportunity for self-expression. Mr. Don volunteers his time, energy, and money to give of himself for betterment of people without selfish motives. Words from Sharon. Mr. Don, in my personal opinion, is sincere in volunteering his time with us addicts. Mr. Don has been honest about his struggles as well. Words from Alicia. Mr. Don has been encouraging and has empowered my life tremendously. Mr. Don has helped me overcome some of my most depressing stages in my life by writing and keeping a journal of my most traumatized moments. Words from Wayne. Mr. Don is always on time for groups. <laughs> Mr. Don really helped me get past and deal with my grief of the death of my father. Everyone likes and just loves Mr. Don, thinks that he should never take off. <laughs> Words from Roger. He makes me a better son. He makes me think about tomorrow and what I can be. Makes you move up on the next step in your life. Words from Jimmy. I don't know where I would be without Mr. Don today. I never wrote one word until I got into his class, and once I did, I found out how it helped me. 
words from Stacy. They say great minds think alike. He's a man, unlike anyone else, a kindred soul. He is a person who can make you dig deep and cleanse your soul through words. And we also have a little gift for you. So if you would like to come up, I'll um, share it with you since I figured out how to get it open. So this is a, a memory box, and it has a picture of everyone. And inside are their um, comments that they wrote to you. Congratulations. Thank you all. Thank you all so much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.